0: The Buddha, with his omniscient knowledge, was one who was able to know the infinite past, the planes of existence, the minds of other beings. He was able to understand the cycling through samsara of beings following their karma, And he was also one who understood and realized the end of suffering. This knowledge, the end of suffering, is not a generalized, amorphous, uh, kind of easily obtainable realization, but it is a precise liberating, timeless, directly experienced reality. It's not arrived at through thinking, or through study, or through hearing anyone else speak about it. But it is through one's own persevering attention and deeply understanding what is observed. The Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths. And the Third Noble Truth is the teaching on, or the truth of, the end of suffering. We don't speak much about the end of suffering. More often we speak about dukkha How to discover it, how to deal with it, how to be mindful, Uh, some of the qualities of mind that we have to notice to put aside, other qualities of mind we notice to arouse. And only incidentally, it seems sometimes, do we mention, oh, there's the end of suffering down the road. Tonight I want to speak about The knowledge of the end of suffering. Because it is an understanding, primarily, that we come to, that we realize through observing our own mind and body. And wherever we start from in our practice, this very identified sense of self with a very limited personal history and a very self-interested proliferation of thoughts, somehow practice moves us from that to this totally open, spacious, non-identified, omnisciently knowing being. I remember when I was first practicing with Upendita, the first three months he came to IMS. I really didn't have any understanding of what the path of practice was about. I, you know, I just thought you would do some retreats and and I told him this in one interview. I said, you know, I thought that, you know, I'd always thought that, you know, you do some retreats and you practice mindfulness and then, you know, you do as best you can and then one day, poof, you get enlightened he looked at me and said who are your teachers (laughs) well that wasn't his understanding of the path of practice so the Buddha taught the fourth noble truth as the path to this understanding the path of practice that leads to this understanding and you'll remember that the, the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path which is comprised of three trainings sila Living in harmony, ethical conduct. Samadhi, the development of tranquility in the mind, putting aside the hindrances. And Panya, the development of wisdom, the development of the right view of things, having the right view of the experiences that we all have. Some views are limiting holding us in a kind of bondage. And another view, another perspective of the same thing is liberating and freeing. The Buddha taught the right view. A couple nights ago I spoke about the right view of karma, a support along the way. And some would say an essential understanding for one to undertake practice. I'm not sure it's essential. It certainly helps, but there is and there are understandings we come to over the course of practice that I want to speak about tonight because there are a few milestones along the way or a few uh, milestones or, I don't know if that's the right word, but a few insights, a few kinds of knowledge that we gain along the way that really Mark the movement of the mind from bondage to liberation. Over a longer retreat like this, we hear a lot of teachings. We offer a lot of teachings. You hear a lot of teachings. You hear a lot of technique. And you arrive at your own understanding and insightful understandings of whatever it is you're dealing with and looking at. And sometimes the vastness of the teachings is lost in the minutiae of our experience. And sometimes the minutiae of the experience is overlooked because we're kind of absorbed or enticed or seduced by the vastness of the teachings. So periodically it's useful to bring the two into some kind of alignment and try to locate our experience within the vastness of the teachings. The Buddha called the Fourth Noble Truth the Noble Eightfold Path. And the idea of there being a path that takes you to the goal, end of suffering, is a useful, it's a useful idea. But it's, it's just a metaphor. It's just an image to use. Uh, let's not take it too literally. But as with any path, there's certain descriptions and certain scenes along the way sights you'll see, difficulties you'll face, uh, challenges, that it's useful to understand that we approach them, we go through them, we get beyond them, and we move towards the goal. However, even understanding that there is a path of practice that leads to the goal, sometimes it seems like the journey on the path is one step forward, two steps back. And so it's helpful near the end of a retreat to hear once again a description of the terrain so we can begin to uh, place ourselves on the path, feel confident about our understanding and practice, and to realize that we may not yet be home. The first task of our mindfulness, it's really, it's hard to believe, but it is to develop enough attention to actually observe what's going on. And when I say observe, I mean... To not be kind of enmeshed in what's going on. To not just be what's going on, but to be able to see what's going on as it's going on. Now, (laughs) that sounds, if you ask anybody on the street, you know what's going on? They know what's going on. But mindful awareness is a very precise kind of awareness. It knows what's going on at the time it's going on. And not by thinking about it, but by directly experiencing it. And it sounds like, well, that's a no-brainer. Anybody can do that. But what this means is when you breathe in, you know you're breathing in. And when you breathe out, you know you're breathing out. When you lift your foot, you know you're lifting your foot. Mostly, you know, we lift our foot and we know, you know, that there's a car going by. <laughs> you know, or, or we know that we're thinking about the past. You know, we're, we're not aware of lifting our foot most of the time. Most of the time we walk, I mean, here you're practicing, let's hope you're aware of lifting a <laughs> foot. But on the, as you hustle down the main street of your life, mostly you're anywhere but present. And so the knowledge the mindful awareness of what's going on takes a fair amount of training just to develop the attention so it can be present. Well, early in my practice career Manindra was teaching at IMS or he was living there for a while and I went for interviews and he says ah, oh, you know, you got to know that uh, what's going on. You got to know nama rupa. You got to know there's something happening, and the awareness of it. And I thought, yeah, okay, what's next? You know, and he wouldn't go any further. He just kept saying, "You got to know that there's an object in each moment, and there is the awareness of it. There's an object, and the awareness of it. Object, and the awareness of it." I'd only been practicing two or three years. I still hadn't got it. Still, I need, didn't have a clue that that was the. F- Before you can get anywhere in the inner practice, you have to be present enough to know that. Wow. (laughs) The first... I remember the first years of retreat. I'd go. I'd sit. I'd listen. I'd hear the instructions and promptly forget everything I heard. Sit there, squirming, struggling, trying to get rid of pain, you know, no matter what they said, I was trying to get rid of the pain. <laughs> you know? And, and it wasn't that I, you know, couldn't follow the breath. I couldn't remember that that's what I was supposed to do. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, just, I didn't even think about, you know, I just sat there, just kind of like, <laughs> come on, happen. You know, whatever. I, that sounds... That's how out of touch I was, and I know others can be, just completely out of touch. Not in your own life. Wow. Well, for someone like me to actually get to this first stage of insight, you know, knowing that something's arising or appearing and you're actually aware of it, I'm a living testimony. <laughs> Practice works. And as you can expect, it was unbelievably frustrating, maddeningly frustrating to not be able to even remember what you're supposed to do, let alone do it. Even when I could remember, I couldn't do it, if I could remember. So, I, I know what it's like. I've been there a long time just but you know even in spite of that you know you keep you keep struggling you keep (laughs) slogging along and accidentally sometimes you actually get it you actually drop into a little place where it's like hey wow it's kind of nice here you know of course you get attached immediately (laughs) and (laughs) but still it's those little glimpses of presence of mind ease, well-being, uh, a kind of a, a calmness, a little joy, a little interest, whatever, that keeps, keeps your interest there. And you know, everybody who does a retreat gets enough of that to get hooked, almost everybody. Good thing we offer these Dharma talks in the evening for a little entertainment you know God without him I never would have been able to get through (laughs) whew okay (laughs) what we see of course all the time we're trying to get some momentum to our attention is we see our habits of mind and this is this is essential to really begin to have an honest accurate uh, picture of what's going on in the mind you know, to, to to begin to scope out the dimensions of the task we're facing. That the mind is really, it's chaotic, it is completely, it's out of control. You know, it is lost in its own wilderness of desires and ambitions and fears and hopes and you know. If we don't see that, we can live in a massive delusion that we're already enlightened. You know, we don't even have to... Hey, I'm already enlightened. What do I have to do that for? You know, and you know what? There are people that believe that. Unfortunately, they do. So, one thing that happens during this phase of practice is that slowly we graft onto our personality the possibility Of awakening. We we begin to get some idea that another way of life is possible, another way of being really is possible. Not that we got to change our job, change our lifestyle, but really another way of being with our mind and body is possible. And we somehow get the message that it's something to do with waking up, being aware, being like the Buddha somehow. And so, that idea, just grafting that idea into your stream of consciousness is really important. And it happens as we just absorb the talks and the instruction and, and we see our own mind and we hear about the possibility. Slowly we begin to get the idea that it is possible. There, there's, there's the potential within us to, whatever it means, awaken. Now, as we learn about our personality and we see the historical antecedents to our behavior or the historical precedences or whatever, the things that brought us to where we are, we also open to the shadow side of our personality. And we all have this shadow side which we would rather not (laughs) look at or acknowledge. You know, it's just the, the dark stuff that... Isn't usually personally acceptable, and uh, the willingness or the, the 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 energy it takes to actually confront it is our first uh, opening to dukkha. It's where we first start to open to this to this truth that you know life is not all that mom and dad told me it could be. You know, there's there's something else here, and it's really unpleasant you know it's really not okay it's pretty it's pretty ba- it's pretty bad you know but we open to it you know gently i mean most of us open very slowly to this understanding of dukkha the truth of dukkha uh, you know we resist and deny it and fight it and struggle against it tooth and nail until it's so obvious that we finally give up and accept it well that is the next really powerful lesson, knowledge that we learn. And we learn it in our bodies, in our minds, but from just sitting with it. You know, we learn what Dukkha is all about. And uh, at the same time we learn the other two characteristics, impermanence and the uh, insubstantiality, the Anatta characteristic. And this whole arena of understanding dukkha, anicca, nanata is foreign to our cultural conditioning. It's just completely foreign to it. And so as we slowly, you know, begin to acknowledge within ourselves, this is what's going on in my mind, in my body, in my life. (coughs) We can't help but look at our past and reframe our understanding of what has gone on. And not only that, but with this knowledge now, this intimate, intuitive, heartfelt reality that we know intimately, our view of the future also gets reframed. And now, and in time, our view of the future, whatever future we imagine for ourselves, has to accommodate the truth of dukkha, the truth of impermanence, and the truth of anatta. So you can you can imagine this phase of practice where we're maturing the knowledge of anicca, anatta, and dukkha, is it's a pretty challenging phase of practice to really take it in, you know, to really imbibe these truths and or the characteristics, the truth of dukkha and to integrate our understanding of the past, and our hopes and our expectations and our plans and aspirations for the future, have to include them, this understanding. That's, that's a challenge, it's a real challenge. And again, we, we end up struggling and fighting and trying to hope that it's not true and denying and, and just having a heck of a time until we can't avoid it. We just, you know, finally, you just give up and say, okay, this is the way it is. In my notes, I just looked at this line. This difficulty with practice wears us out, and we frequently feel disgusted with the whole process and just want to give up. (laughs) Well, isn't that the truth? Again, you know, when I finally, in my own practice, began to open to the pain of my personal history. It was torturous. I'm not a very psychologically sophisticated and never had that kind of training. But, boy, when you get inside your own conditioning and you see, you feel the pain of it, you get sophisticated pretty quick that this is a painful process. And an interesting thing occurs as we open to our own process of conditioning and coming to understand the truth of Dukkha, we understand it not only for ourselves, but we understand it for all other beings. And this is another very, very powerful and necessary learning, knowledge that we gain, is that it opens our heart to caring about others it really opens opens us to recognizing the, the sangha and gaining support from the sangha and offering support to the sangha that you know just as i am seeing my own conditioning and the pain of it and the freeing a little bit of it to practice we know without knowing the details or without knowing the specifics we know all beings same situation all beings. Same situation. And it just, it just really drops a lot of that. It, it allows us to drop a lot of that division-making in the mind. That isolating, the separating, you know, you're over there, I'm over here, we're different. Because you get to the, the, you get to the area of commonality with all beings. And all the apparent differences that seem so important on the surface Whatever those differences are, you realize that underneath it, there's all, uh, th- there's more similarity than differences, and so you can feel at home. You can feel connected to anyone who's, whatever condition they are. Kind of. This part of practice, this, this place of beginning to really accept our personality, the conditioning that led to it, beginning to take it apart a little bit, and to open to the possibility of freedom, whatever that is, grafting on the possibility, it took me 10 years. This is just the beginning of Vipassana practice. Now, it, it's not that it takes everybody 10 years. I was, I was particularly slow. Uh, I, was really <laughs> I was really, you know. I think I was so slow and, and went through such a struggle and had such a hard time uh, so that I could be a better teacher. I, I, th- I really think that, you know, if you kind of hurry right along and get through all that stuff, then uh, you might not be able to relate to people who are struggling so much. But believe me, I've been there. Anyway, something happened and I told it in a story some days ago where at some point in my, in my practice I just got this burning desire isn't the right word burning aspiration to realize what the heck the Buddha was talking about and just to, to, to get to the bottom of it I, I, now I had to know and that's when I went off to Burma And after 10 years of struggling, I mean, just pain all the time, frustration, disappointment, I mean, I went to Burma, and in two weeks, gone beyond. That was, it was just beyond everything, anything I'd ever seen in 10 years. It's not because it's Burma, it's because that's where the mind was at that time. The mind was on fire, just really wanted to know. And one of the first Or I should say the next kind of knowledge that comes with uh, that kind of fire in the mind where your personality is no longer either the vehicle or the goal or an impediment. Your personality is just something that you're carrying along for the ride. And you're really, you're in the process. Then you begin to see the impersonal nature of the process. You really see that this mind is just bubbling along, and your personality is just baggage. You can't get rid of it. You can't get. I mean, you can't get rid of it. You can't deny it. You got to live with it. But you begin to see that if you make the effort, things happen that are beyond your your personality, that are beyond your own um, uh, capacity, beyond your own understanding. Somebody came in today, reporting, said, you know, I was just doing my practice. And then I had this one time, you know, uh, yesterday, I guess, yesterday, the day before, where the, mi- the body was so light. It was like I was filled with helium. You know, it was like there was, no, there was no body. There was no weight to the body. I was so light. The mind was light. I was just unsuppressibly happy. Uh, you know, it's just, it was just wonderful. You know it was just great there was the there was no not no no thinking, no hindrances. it was just great. well, she'd never imagined that she didn't think about that. she didn't know how to make that happen, but she experienced it because she's kind of beginning to slip through the kind of the boundaries of her personality and getting into the process and seeing that the process is. <laughs> Your personality is just a little surface layer. Oh, okay. So now we start to open to what I was speaking about last night, these dramatic effects of good practice. You know, extraordinary rapture, ecstasy, tranquility, piercing insight, effortless energy, you know, bubbling outrageous confidence that just can't be suppressed by anything. This is completely beyond our own personal capacity but it's not beyond the capacity of the mind and so we begin to open to the possibility and we begin to experience the mind as being greater than more potential and we we actually see how how Mm -hmm. little the personality is of the mind this is this is just a just a tremendous opening in practice and it's a knowledge that we learn from experience you know, can't, you know i can tell you about it you can read about it you can imagine it you can read other people but you have to actually do it and when you do of course then then you know and that kind of knowledge can't be taken away once you have that knowledge you got it well can't help but get identified and attached to that. All those experiences are called in the in the text pseudo-nibbana, because you think, this is it. Wow, now I'm cruising. I must have got it by now. Yep. And you get identified and you think, okay, now I've got it. And of course, you haven't. <laughs> A good teacher will bust you gently. <laughs> well, when I got to Burma and was practicing, and got to this place in practice, uh, Upandita, he listened to my reports, you know, and he'd say, oh, yeah, okay, how are you noting that? And I'd say, oh, I'm noting it, I'm noting it diligently. It lasts all day. All day, hmm, ecstasy, all day, hmm. Okay, how'd you note it? I just note joy, happiness, liking, pleasant, pleasant. Okay, okay. And then he said, you know what? You're not noting, you're indulging. (laughs) I said, no, 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 I really am noting. He said, no, you're not. (laughs) And so he did a very skillful thing. He said, you know, this is really good, isn't it? I said, yeah, it is. It's it's great. You know, it's really pretty phenomenal. He said, mindfulness really works, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It really opens you up to things that you never saw before. Yeah, it does. That's right. He said, you know what? What? There's better things ahead. If you can let go of this, there's better things ahead. So now the challenge was, okay, how do I get to that better stuff? <laughs> 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 the only way to get there is to let go of this one. Oh no, <laughs> I like that rapture, I like that ecstasy, Whew, that's great. Okay, so he said, just note it. I said, okay, just noting, noting, took me months, even with that, months to get through this You know, it's a funny thing. When you're in this stage of practice, you think you're the only person in the world that has ever experienced this. Mm -hmm. You do. You do. You think, this is it. I know now. I don't even... And often the thought comes, I bet my teacher hasn't experienced (laughs) this. Really. It's like, it is so powerful. It's so beyond the personality. You can't help but have that thought. And of course you know, depending on your wisdom and, you know, you'll you'll either get identified with it or you'll let it go. Well, <laughs> Opandida even told me, he says, you know, he says, some people when they get to this stage, they think that even their teacher hasn't had these experiences. Of course, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> even though he told me, I still didn't think he had them. <laughs> this is arrogance. Anyway, no exception for me. He busted me, kept me going, and said, uh, you know just keep noting just keep noting this is good but there's better ahead okay so he kept you know after me just note don't indulge okay can you believe it you know how it is when you when you mindfully eat you know it kind of destroys a good meal <laughs> <laughs> you know so now you're kind of indulging in ecstasy and you're just trying to note it. Uh, just ecstasy, just pleasure, just outrageous tranquility, just, it's just piercing insight, you know, it's just nothing special, just, just <laughs> noting, you know. Eventually you kind of come down and you just see, well this is just what it is, it's just what it is. You stop, you stop taking it as a measure of accomplishment. And that's really the understand. This is the important understanding of this. It's not so important that you experience ecstasy or whatever. The important understanding is that that you understand that that is not it. No matter how high you get, no matter how subtle, how uh, bubbly, or how thin, or how transparent, or how tranquil, or how clear your mind is, That's not it. Because we're attached. We get attached to it. So somehow we have to loosen our identification, our attachment to those experiences, which are usually all that we've ever imagined meditation is ever going to lead us to. And so it's hard for us to imagine what could be better than that. It's just, you just can't imagine. So, okay. So we just know, we just Keep noting. And the next understanding that we come to is very undramatic. For as dramatic as, as that is, the next understanding is really undramatic. And that is that everything that arises passes away. Life is nothing but a series of Appearances, passing away. Appearances, passing away. Appearances, passing away. And you see it in every moment, every sense door, everything. Wow. It seems so... It's like, well, so that's it. Everything that arises, passes away. Well, this has a radical shifting in the mind because it allows us to let go. We just let go of everything. You know, just because you see, and, and it's from directly experiencing that whatever arises in your body, whatever arises in your mind, whatever arises in your environment, it's there and gone. There and gone. It deconditions grasping, clinging, hanging on, attachment. Now, this sets the stage. At this point, of course, I'm, uh, I have to admit that the mind is really mature. The mind is not missing a beat, so to speak. Whatever is arising, there's tremendous confidence. Now you're you're not just exuberantly confident, you're steady con- steadily confident. Uh, your energy is pretty mellow or pretty pretty steady your interest is steady, it's just things are mellowed out a little bit. The imagination is, or what we imagine at this stage, is that it's going to keep going like this. Unfortunately, it does not. (laughs) This is the doorway into refining the understanding of Dukkha. We saw Dukkha at an early stage. And it was pretty difficult. It was pretty challenging. It was pretty personal, actually. Our personal body, our personal history, our personal life stuff, Dukkha. Okay, well, we've now accepted that. We've kind of gotten beyond that. But now we're opening the door to universal Dukkha. And there's a whole place in practice which is called the Dukkha Jnanas. And this is the knowledge of Dukkha. Because remember, the First Noble Truth is the Truth of Dukkha. And it is said of the Truth of Dukkha, it has to be investigated. Well, this is where we begin to investigate the Truth of Dukkha. And it gets really bad. This is called the rolling up the mat stage. This is where all you want to do is roll up the mat and go home. All the time. Every moment. There's no satisfaction whatsoever practice. Nothing about practice is good. There's no sense of momentum. Every day, every minute feels like first day struggle. And there's no uh, sense of yourself being accomplished or having any uh, capability. Your self-esteem goes right through the floor. Your uh, confidence seems to go right through the floor. Can't do anything. And even there, there doesn't even seem to be anything to note if you could even remember to note. It gets bad. I'm sorry. It gets really bad. <laughs> this is where you need a teacher. You need a teacher here that you can trust. One that you have lived with, that you have, uh, have taken instruction from, that you've had your uh, ins and outs and ups and downs and tussles and regrets and remorse and, and uh, lack of confidence and confidence. At this point, you will not proceed if you don't have that teacher. You cannot get through this stage without a teacher. Because you won't believe that this is, this is right practice. You will think this can't be right and you'll stop. Guaranteed, no doubt about it. So let's hope that you have a teacher. Because in time, we just note what we can And miraculously, we get through this stage somehow with a lot of encouragement. It just takes a tremendous amount of encouragement. And uh, we can get through it. Uh, But in the process, you let go of a lot. You let go of a lot. You let go of everything to the point where you don't react anymore. I don't say you don't respond, you don't react. Your equanimity gets so strong at this point that it doesn't matter what comes up, you don't react. The sun could rise in the west, nice day, okay. The earth could crack open and uh, everything could fall in, that's the way it is, okay, no reaction. It doesn't mean that you're cut off or in denial or just being stupid. It means that you actually see the way things are. You understand dukkha. Now, you have matured your understanding of dukkha so that no matter how bad it gets, it doesn't push your buttons. Equanimity gets really strong. And they say of this of this knowledge about equanimity that it's the, the when you kind of mature your understanding of dukkha and you reach this Development of equanimity—that your mind is like the mind of a fully enlightened being. Unfortunately, uh, that's only a temporary condition for those of us who are at this stage of the path. You know, it's only through the persistence of our practice that we can kind of sustain that non-reactivity. A fully enlightened being has uprooted the tendencies from the mind, and they never fall back. But if we stop practice, we'd fall back into misbelief. So, when that knowledge of equanimity towards all experiences matures, then we have a a really very light mind, lightly touching, very broad uh, perception, kind of like a panoramic mindfulness, whatever's going on, extreme serenity and clarity, no fear of anything, no fear of anything, no matter what, no matter how painful it gets. It still can be painful. No matter how painful, no matter how threatening, no matter how fierce. No fear. No reaction. It's a great place to be. It's a great place to uh, live because every everything is seen equally. You really rest in that place of being totally open to everything not closing down to anything and knowing it at this point in, in practice I was a monk in Burma and um, the mind is so light the body is so light that when I was walking around the monastery I couldn't remember and I couldn't feel that I had clothes on robes on and I'd, and often I'd have to look, make sure I had my robes on, <laughs> to see because the mind, you know, the mind is like not bogged down in anything, and the body is, is not either. You know, even if you have on clothes, you don't know, you don't feel anything. So the 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 the, the uh, lightness of the mind not being mm-hmm. uh, glommed onto anything means the body too is that like every every two weeks all the monks of the monastery have to get together. And they, they do a confession do with each other. And then they recite the, uh, all the rules that monks live by. And it's kind of a ceremony. It takes about 45 minutes. And um, wow, I remember at that time when, I, when equanimity was really strong, uh, going to do my confession with another monk. And, you know, you say a phrase, you know, and uh, they say a phrase. And you respond back and forth like that. And it's like, I'd say a phrase and it would drop into this timeless place where time stops. It's not that time expands or contracts, it just time stops. And it's like, you know, the other monk would say something, and I'd come back. Boom, time starts again. And it was like there was no connection to what had just gone on before. It's just like time is there, and it ends. And then time begins again the end and it's like living in timelessness where there isn't a sequence of things that unfold over time it's just everything is timeless when I look back now over the five years that I was in Burma you know because my life up to that point didn't continue when I was in Burma my life in Burma didn't continue after I left That whole five years is like no time it's not that it took a long time or a short time. It just wasn't time. It's amazing what that view of things does to your view of the world. When you realize there really isn't anything like time. Time doesn't exist. One time I was practicing, I was in in this place in practice and Joseph and Sharon came to the monastery to practice for a couple months. And when they came, of course I'd known them for 10 years (laughs) while I was struggling for 10 years. And they came, so I got really excited. So that night after the Dharma talk, I was talking to them and excited, oh, what's going on back home? And yada, 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 yada. And just checking it out. And one of the other monks in the, Western monks that had been in the monastery with me during that time, the next day he came up to me and said, oh, I saw you talking to... Joseph and Sharon last night. I said, yeah. Yeah, I've known him for a long time. He said, why, oh, you're talking again? I said, yeah, why? He said, you haven't, t- you haven't said anything for six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know. I was just like, I was just doing my thing. You know, I remember one Burmese monk asking me about six weeks before, did you ever practice without talking? And I said, uh, no, you know, I mean, yeah, kind of noble silence, but, you know, I usually have occasion to talk each day. He says, you ought to try it sometimes. So I said, okay, three days, I'm not going to talk. So something happened, all three days I talked. So I said, well, that didn't work so good. Maybe I'll take four more days, I'm not going to talk. Well, I don't remember what happened, whether I talked or not. But it was six weeks later, this monk said, oh, I see you're talking. <laughs> I thought that's how timeless the mind is. Timeless. So we have this knowledge, this understanding of timelessness, or we have this understanding of the just the arising and passing away of things, or the timelessness. Then we open to this knowledge, and it's like the knowledge of the mind, knowing the nature of the mind. And I can tell you the nature of the mind is empty. Well, empty mind means there's nothing in it. Well, that's not quite what it means. It means it's not made of anything. The mind's not made of anything. And yet, everything we know appears in the mind. All history, all fiction, all personal life, everything we've ever imagined about the future, everything we know about the universe, is due to the mind. It appears in the mind. Without the mind, we don't know anything. You know, a corpse looks just like us, except it has no mind. corpse doesn't know anything. So, all that we know is due to the mind. Now, the nature of the mind is to know, to cognize, to recognize, to know what's going on. The function of consciousness is knowing. So it has got to be the mind that knows freedom or liberation. It can't be anything else. It's the mind that knows bondage. It's the mind that knows freedom. Now, if we understand that, we know now that the mind is something like a super powerful cam recorder. It records everything that the eyes see, the ears hear, the nose smells, the tongue tastes, the body feels, and the mind thinks. And not only that, but it has an archive where everything is kept. This is the mind. So we have this vast archival storehouse in the mind. Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche says of the mind, he says, what we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred, attachment, suddenly arise without warning. And unless they're immediately overpowered with a proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred and attachment in the mind, adding more and more karmic imprint. One understanding, or maybe I should say misunderstanding that we sometimes get on the path is that we have to enter the archival storeroom of the mind and empty it out. You know, we think, ah, i got to go in there, rummage around, see what's uh, of use, see what's not, throw it out, or at least let go. But identifying our past problems is not enough, says Matthew Ricard. This was uh, Dilgo Kinsey, Rinpoche's translator. He says, reliving events from the distant past is only of limited remedy, which can help overcome some blockages, but does not eliminate the primary cause. Constantly stirring the mud in the bottom of a pond with a stick does not purify the water. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So now, what purifies the water? What allows us to see the nature of the mind? Hmm? You know, the practice we do, the mindfulness practice, the intentional turning on the switch of mindfulness. Hmm? Turn on the switch mindful for a moment, then the light dims back in the dark. Turn on the switch, mindful for a moment, slowly it dims, back in the dark. There's a wonderful story about a group of young children who lived in a spiritual community. They were taught meditation in preschool and reported some very interesting spiritual experiences, as only children can. One day they were shown a movie. The room was darkened and the projector began to roll. One of the children turned around in his seat and watched the projector for a long time. When he was asked why he didn't watch the screen instead, he replied that he was more interested in seeing where the movie was coming from. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when we do that with the mind, we turn around and look at the mind itself. Now, all that stuff we've been paying attention to, all those appearances in the mind, the personal history, the sights, the sounds, the thoughts, the sensations in the body, we're not looking at them anymore. We're looking at the knowing itself, the mind. This pure, empty nothing the mind not made of anything one way we can understand the nature of the mind is as the Tibetan some Tibetan Tibetan teachers uh, liken they liken the nature of the mind to the sky you know the sky is this vast clear emptiness not made of anything Yet, when clouds appear they float through the sky and they dissolve and the sky remains unchanged. Well, the mind is like that. Vast, open, empty, not made of anything. Thoughts appear, float through the mind, leave the mind, and the mind remains unchanged. Now, when the clouds appear in the sky you don't see that it's empty anymore. It still is empty, but you don't see that it's empty. Just as when thoughts appear in the mind, you don't see that the mind is empty. It is empty, but you don't see it. We get identified with the thoughts. We focus on the thoughts. And we miss the essential, empty freedom of the mind. Thoughts like clouds obscure the mind. Clouds obscure the sky. And it really doesn't matter whether the clouds are nice, white, fluffy things or whether they're dark and stormy. Equally, they cloud the sky. So too, you can have very elevated uh, thoughts or you can have very dark and and de-elevated thoughts. Either way, they obscure the essential freedom of the mind. Now, the mind has a capacity to know. Everything that you know is known by the mind. The mind is not made of anything. It's unbounded, has no shape, has no color, has no size. It just is. During this retreat, you have experienced a lot of pain, you've experienced a lot of sorrow, maybe some regret, you've experienced a lot of happiness, maybe some joy, a lot of good meals, beautiful sunsets. Has the mind changed? With any of that, has the mind changed at all? Is the mind essentially different now? Than it was at the beginning of the retreat? Or does the mind still remain empty, open, vast, not made of anything? And yet it's still ready to experience anything. Right? Whatever happens right now, the mind is ready for it. no matter what you have done in the past no matter what you plan to do in the future doesn't affect the mind hasn't touched the mind in its essence its capacity to know is completely untouched by what has been experienced what appears in the mind thoughts our fears Our ambitions, our sorrows, our regrets, our guilt, our shame, our humiliation, it's just an appearance in the mind. From a certain perspective, it looks very real. It looks like it's really who we are. But from the understanding of the nature of the mind, it's just an appearance. You know when a rainbow appears in the sky? You look over there, and you see a rainbow. Is there anything there? Really, that appearance in the sky is due to conditions. There's some moisture and the sun, and you're viewing it at a certain angle, and there appears a rainbow. But that rainbow has no substance. It has no, there's nothing there, really. It just appears due to conditions. The thoughts that appear in your mind appear due to conditions. They really have no substance. But from this perspective, they look real. From the understanding of the nature of the mind, you see, they're just an appearance. Shabkar says. No matter how much happiness and sorrow is experienced, how amazing it is that the nature of the mind is never impaired nor improved, even in the slightest. So we begin to understand the empty nature of the mind, shunyata, emptiness mind not made of anything, appearances also not made of anything. With this understanding of the emptiness of all phenomena and the emptiness of the mind, it's possible to access the unconditioned, to leap into it, to fall into it, to stumble upon it, however it is it's possible to access the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is none of the above. Nothing that you have known before. Nothing that you recognize. Had no color, no shape, no form. There's no characteristics to describe it. And yet, it's a reality to be experienced. And it can be experienced. And you know you've experienced it. And it will totally transform the mind. It would totally transform your personality, your life. The unconditioned is the fulfillment of the third noble truth. Accessing, touching nibbana. Finding that place of no dukkha not even in the slightest. Total freedom from dukkha. And this is the knowledge that this practice takes you to. This is the knowledge of the Buddha. This is the perfection of wisdom that the Buddha realized. There is nothing beyond this. When the mind accesses Nibbāna, when the mind accesses the unconditioned and reaches Nibbāna, There's peace. It's our our own responsibility to walk this path. To gain these understandings. To realize these liberating understandings. To come to the right view of karma. The right view of living in harmony. The right view of tranquilizing the mind. The right view of Awareness, the right view of the nature of mind, the right view of anicca, anatta, and dukkha, the right view of equanimity, the right view of emptiness, and the right view of liberation. If you practice, it will all happen. It'll all unfold, just like that. Joseph calls it a natural unfolding. Upandita doesn't. But nevertheless, it still unfolds just like that if you practice. Now most of us have not realized that. But we should not be disheartened by the path or by our place in the path. But take it as an inspiration, take it as an aspiration not take it lightly, not to dismiss it, because it is within reach of all of us. If you practice, it will happen. So let's sit for a minute. Just as butter is made from the essence of milk, but if the milk isn't churned, the butter won't form, so too. Even though the mind is inherently free and empty, if we don't practice, we won't realize it. Thank you for listening to the Dharma.